We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. All right. So for those of you who have listened to this program uh, quite a bit and you are familiar with some of the touch points and conversations that I have had about Christian nationalism, we haven't really dived super deep into this topic. We've had a couple of guests on and a couple of conversations because it is such an important topic. And so I wanted to spend an entire hour today diving really deep into this concept of uh, the definition or the, the vagueness really of Christian nationalism, why this is so important, and I believe a very sincere threat to the doctrines of scripture that we hold and cherish as Christians and should uh, very sincerely, and we need to know and rightly divide truth from error, and also then how that informs how the Christian ought to view civil government and the authorities that God has established. So joining me for this discussion on the program is uh, Dr. Bill Roach, who is the Dean of the Norm Geisler Chair for Christian Apologetics at Veritas University, also has a YouTube channel and a great presentation on Christian nationalism, apart from this conversation, is also uh, on his channel at YouTube and also at uh, Sovereign Nations, which uh, my good friends James Lindsay and Mike O'Fallon run, and you can find uh, that presentation of Christian nationalism. So, uh, Bill, thanks so much for joining me today. This is a really important topic, and I watched your presentation, and it was truly excellent um, to first define, I think, the scope of why authoritarianism is actually a problem regardless of whether it is secular or religious, whether it's Christian or not, and where it comes comes from. So, so let's start there in terms of um, the overarching problem of Christian nationalism. Well, thank you, Jenna. I really appreciate being able to come on your show today. It's truly an honor to be able to discuss these issues because they're very fundamental, not only to what the church's mission should be, but what we as Christians living in America know that we're going to face. And sort of spearheading what you were saying there, that totalitarianism, that's something that is a word that catches so many of us because we've seen it used and abused all over the globe. And we think about this, we think of these big totalitarian regimes and how they've arisen in places like China and places like Russia or Germany or South America, and we see them as distant sort of foes that we fought or they're not something that we're having to face today. And then the inroads of it has been is that we're seeing the ideologies of these movements facing us now coming not from just external, but internal, coming from children inside of our families, coming from the classrooms and so much more. 
And that's what has concerned me about this whole Christian nationalist movement is that it doesn't really differ in kind from any of these other regimes. It differs by degree. And unfortunately, what they're trying to do is they're trying to give us a form of totalitarianism and it's a baptized form of totalitarianism. So they act like it's, you know, if we can baptize it somehow, it makes it less potent in its threat to people. But like I've said, totalitarianism, whether it comes from the left or from the right, whether religious or non-religious, all has the same net goal of controlling you. And we as Americans, we are principled upon the ideas of freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And that's why this issue is so important. Yeah, and I think that that's really well said, because if we look at scripture and we look at the freedom and liberty that is in Christ, and we look at um, our rights being pre-political, so this is before even the foundations of American government or the influences that our founders drew upon and the history going all the way back, as you talk about in your presentation, you know, back to um, even the, you know, the Roman Empire and then coming out of that Constantine and Charlemagne and, you know, of course, this tension between the church and the state that then has uh, gone down throughout uh, really the church age and church history, we have to understand as Christians that we are made in the image of God. We have inherent dignity and worth and what that means in terms of who we are as created in the image of God and therefore have rights that are pre-political. And so this isn't just an appeal to America's founding. This isn't suggesting that our constitution is somehow divinely inspired or is a sacred document like the Bible. It can draw upon the Bible and therefore have sacred influences. Uh, but the document itself is just a recognition of that biblical truth. And so if we go back to scripture first and say, all authority is God's and is delegated to the institutions that God has ordained, the idea of authoritarianism or totalitarianism really uh, flies in the face and is completely contrary to that concept of limited specific powers, because our founders would have recognized, as the Bible does, that no institutions have rights. They only have specific limited powers that come from God's own authority when exercised properly. It's we as human beings who retain all our rights. And in the context of civil government, merely allow our civil government to exercise legitimate authority under God's own full and complete authority. That's so true. And you know, one of the things that's interesting is, is that we were talking about definitions of Christian nationalism and sort of how they're growing in the public sphere. And it's interesting because you put a tweet out where you were talking about how if we could only just define this term, we could solve much of this debate. And I would agree with you. There's so many of these issues where people are speaking past one another. But I think what we forget in this whole debate is two very big concepts. And the first one is narrative arcs. And the second one, we could talk about just postmodern linguistic manipulations. So narrative arcs would be something like this. We're trying to tell a story and any and everything that we try to do to tell that story has to fit that narrative arc. So when you're looking at the concept of Christian nationalism, and you see one person saying something like, well, Christian nationalism is nothing more than just biblical morality in society. And you think, well, that's not bad. I could handle that. Well, for a particular group of people, that's achieving the narrative arc. Or for other people, it could be something like, 
you know, we are tired of seeing drag queen story hour within society today. So you're left with this situation. It's either drag queen story hour or it's Christian nationalism. We're returning back to some kind of principled nationalism we have in this regard. You say, that's not bad. I could handle that too. But what about the flip sides? What about when people are saying things like Christian nationalism is going to be America's version of a Protestant Franco? And you think that's a frightening concept, but that still fulfills the narrative arc. And here's what I mean by this. The reason that we have so many different definitions of this is because ultimately the people who are controlling the definition of Christian nationalism isn't first and foremost the people who are spouting off as the most popular Christian nationalists. The people that talk about this the most usually are people on the left that are using it as a term to brandish anybody that might be center or center right as a crazy Christian nationalist. And in doing so, it operates like a smear tactic, but it's also achieving, like we said, their great narrative arc. Now, the second thing that I talk about with this is that we have these concepts of linguistic manipulations. And this is so fundamental to just postmodernism as such, is that language can be used to manipulate and in many respects to get you to react in the way that they want you to react. So what they do is they create these sort of linguistic situations where you have these bifurcations. It's either A or B, but they really want you to pick B. And I liken this unto sort of the rise of what you see in sort of submission grappling within Brazilian jiu-jitsu or something. You present a rough situation when you want them to put their arm out with the hope that you're gonna be able to submit them and then when they do, you've got them. And that's exactly what's happening so much with this term, is that they're giving us all of these different situations to manipulate people in a certain way. And you might think, well, where does this come from? Well, this is classically his Hegel's traditional notion of the dialectic. You create horizontal sort of distractions excuse me, my voice is a little rough today, in order to achieve vertical ends. And what they're doing is if they can keep us debating what's the definition of this and what's the definition of that, and can you actually speak properly about Christian nationalism, they can achieve whatever leftist goals they're trying to achieve. So here's what I want you to see with this is that when they're debating these tactics, what it ultimately is, is it's a linguistic manipulation in order to run the ball and never inevitably wherever they want to go. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like it's a lot, uh, it, it's very similar to how the left uses this concept of white supremacy or this concept of social justice or some of these other nebulous terms that they present this false dichotomy. And they'll say, okay, if you are for uh, or you're against whatever their proposition is that they want to achieve, then they're necessarily binding you to an option that anyone rational would disregard. Because of course, I'm not going to openly admit and say, sure, by your definition, of course, I'm a racist. Or sure, by your definition, I don't want justice in society. So then they're forcing you to say, well, then you have to embrace our notions and our false definitions of equality or our false definitions of social justice that is pursuing um, the, these types of uh, you know, civil 
uh, ends and, and to bring about this kind of cultural Marxism. And so what they're doing in the same sense with Christian nationalism, as I see it with this very vague definition, is they're trying to put very well-meaning Christians into a box where they're saying, if you are a Christian and you love America, then that necessarily means you have to be an advocate for Christian nationalism. And that plays both into the left's view of trying to then use that term falsely and basically um, equivocate to say, well, you're a Nazi then who probably participated in January 6th, et cetera, et cetera. And then the Christian nationalists who actually want to tear down the Constitution are saying, ha, see, you're part of our entire ends, and therefore you have to also believe in all of the rest of our worldview. And that false dichotomy, I think, needs to be rejected. That's exactly it. And it's interesting because we saw this happen over the last few years, and I was hoping that the evangelical church would have kind of caught on to it. I don't think they did. And like you were saying, when you look at the whole woke movement, you notice how it worked you know, you can be woke depending on how you define the term, who actually gets to define the term. And did you notice this? There's this, this fancy term. It's usually something like epistemic privileged place or epistemic privileged point. And what they mean by that is, is that if you are from a particular perspective or from a particular point of view, you have greater status to speak on something. And we know how that worked with the woke movement is that if you held a certain race or a certain intersectionality point, you had the privilege because you have the, the special knowledge to discuss this particular issue. And what's interesting is, is that it ended up being this silencer of conversation with people that if you don't hold that, you either don't know it, you can't know it, you can't speak to it. So you just have to trust and obey exactly what we're saying. And it's funny because that's exactly what Christian nationalists are doing it. If you don't have their epistemic privilege place of which you can address this topic, or if you define it a little differently, or whichever means they're going to give you, you don't have the rights and the privilege to speak to it. Sounds woefully similar, doesn't it? Because what yeah, it, it is, sounds, it sounds it's a, a Hegelian like tactic and a postmodern tactic to stop conversation to achieve long-term goals. And like you said, the long-term goal is to ultimately nullify religious freedom and freedom of speech in the public sphere. Yeah, it sounds a lot like the left saying, no uterus, no opinion. You're a man, you can't speak on abortion. If you're white, then you can't speak to the black experience. Or conversely, by saying, well, if you're not a biologist, you can't say what a woman is. And so they use both of these, both the um, experiential and the epistemological, as well as their experts and their credentials to then excise anyone from public speech and debate whose opinions they don't want. And they can censor anyone and they can ultimately, what, go back to this totalitarian uh, society and this kind of authoritarianism that they prefer. So we have to take a break uh, right here, but I'm speaking with Dr. Bill Roach, and we're talking about the importance of understanding Christian nationalism and this threat, this ongoing threat to our civil society. We'll be right back. The medical establishment has been playing God with the lives of innocent babies for decades now. Many have grown callous because it seems surreal to think that over 64 million babies have been lost. Preborn will not stand silent, nor should we. 
We cannot stand by and let babies die at the hand of abortion. That's why preborn exists, to stand up for those who cannot defend themselves. The only defense for these precious babies is their heartbeat, which begins at just three weeks and can be heard on ultrasound by five weeks. When a mother making that ultimate choice hears her baby's heartbeat and sees the precious life inside of her, the majority of the time she will choose life. By sponsoring an ultrasound for a mother, you are being the voice of the preborn. Please join Preborn in the cause for life. For just $28, you can be the difference between the life and the death of a child. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. All right, so I'm speaking with Dr. Bill Roach, who is the Dean of the Norm Geisler Chair for Christian Apologetics at Veritas University, has this great presentation of a Christian nationalism you can find on YouTube, you can find on SovereignNations.com as well. And uh, before the break, Bill, we were talking about um, this whole kind of squidgy or vague definition to Christian nationalism. So what should be the definition if we understand how Christian nationalists like Stephen Wolf, who wrote the uh, the seminal text, really, at least in the modern era, on Christian nationalism, it's called Christian nationalism, what those who hold this worldview and this perspective actually believe and how we need to understand it so that we can talk coherently within their parameters of what they're actually projecting. So here's the interesting thing is that if I were to give you a definition of Christian nationalism right now, they would all jump on it, say that I misdefined it and that I don't have the ability or the credentials or whatever terms they're going to use to actually discuss that matter. So here's what I think is the best approach when you're talking with a Christian nationalist. One of the things that Stephen does in his book and other figures try to do, and there are other books on it, is they want to just give this slam down definition. And I think they realize that obviously words in different movements have to be defined. There has to be a parameter within that. I give them good faith in that regard. But then you'll notice these interesting little things that they're doing. They say, we don't want to discuss it historically. And the reason they'll say that is because there's too much baggage or maybe it clouds their definition or whatever means they're going to give to it. But I go, that's precisely where we need to go. So when you look at the history of this issue, the best way to understand Christian nationalism in its just barest sense is what's known as integralism. Integralism is ultimately this idea where we're going to have a mixing of the church and the state. And primarily what you're going to find is, is that you're going to see the state enforcing the church's laws on different matters. So that's a broad concept. But when you look at it historically and you look at integralist movements within the West, that's precisely what we find, whether it's with Constantine or you're going to find it within greater Europe. You even find this, ironically, within certain segments of of Protestantism. You find Calvin doing it within Geneva. You even find it in... For example, we were in Boston recently. We took a vacation up there, and nobody can deny that the Puritans did some of these things when they first colonized the United States of America. And we make the distinction between those who initially colonized the United States of America and what actually became our United States Constitution. And let me give you an example of what this looks like. Um, 
when you're there, you have this statue of a woman named Mary Dyer. And Mary Dyer was a woman who came over as a Puritan, but she would go back and forth between the United States and England. And while she was away at one point in time, she converted to Quakerism. And if you know anything about the relationship between Quakers and Puritans, they didn't get along because they differed over things such as divine special revelation, as it relates to almost like a charismatic concept of divine revelation given to them over the ordination of women, over a variety of different things. Well, Mary came back to Boston and she started hosting Quaker meetings. And during this time, Mary actually became pregnant and she miscarried the child. And these Puritans were saying to her, well, you miscarried the child because of your conversion to Quakerism. And they ended up passing all of these laws banning Quakerism. And she was hung in the Boston Commons for being a Quaker. And she's gone down as a hallmark now of what it really means to have religious freedom in the United States of America. So when we look at this, when we see sort of the, the, the Puritan ideal put on the American soil, it led to the death of people like Mary Dyer. So regardless of what kind of definition they want to give, we know what they're actually doing with the Christian nationalism. They're enforcing these blasphemy laws from the state in an integralist sense to silence those who oppose them. So in that sense, it's a denial of freedom of speech and the freedom of religion. And this is why I think, uh, Bill, it's so important that we do look back at history, because while we as Christians, of course, are rejecting what the secularists would espouse that Jefferson meant by the separation of church and state, that Christians can't even engage government, that civil government has a no objective moral truth at its foundation, that ultimately is the measurable difference between what we criminalize and prohibit versus what we uh, what is permissible in society. Uh, what is that difference between mala inse versus mala prohibitum, this concept in law that certain things are just inherently evil, and then some things just for the good and well-ordered uh, establishment of society, then we have to have those uh, prohibited just to have a moral and upright society. Um, so we tend to, as Christians, um, uniformly understand that it's a leftist proposition, the separation of church and state. But what's fascinating about the Christian nationalist position is that when they talk about separation of church and state, they're actually uh, coming at it from the right. And they're suggesting that integralism means that we don't have a separation of church and state. Jefferson was wrong because he was a deist. And we have to have this integral uh, type of cohesive philosophy that our founders fundamentally understood in context in their moment in history. And they expressly rejected so that we had two different spheres of authority under God, which is the civil government and the church government. And it wasn't integral. Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. That's so much of what we see here is, is that there's this strong return to the idea of the compulsion of religion within this Christian nationalist movement. And what they're doing with it is that you'll find a lot of them. And again, it's a broad movement and there's a lot of zeal with it is when you look at these sort of thought terminating cliches that they're giving either, you know, Christ or chaos. And if you don't sort of have the, the fully orbed all of the aspects of God's divine revelation written into American law, then you can't have any ethical aspects given to society. And I go, first of all, just looking at the argument, that's a false bifurcation. It's not either this or that. And people might be thinking, 
well, what's in the middle of this or what's another alternative? And I go, the natural law tradition that we have throughout Western society. You know, I can still legislate morality because if it's true that all of us are made in the image of God and we have these self-evident principles of morality that are given to all people at all times in all places, I can legislate the moral law because it's something that exists outside of all of us, because it's something that God has given as a feature to all of humanity, and it's something that resides inside all of us because he gave us not only a law, but a conscience. And that's so much of what the American founders realized, that we have these self-evident truths given by our creator through a natural law of which we can legislate morality without legislating blasphemy laws for differing over the Sabbath or whether one's a Quaker or a Baptist or a Puritan or so on and so forth. Yeah, and I think that's an incredibly important point that when our founders talked about the laws of nature and of nature's God, they were not promoting a theocracy or even really a theonomy in the, the general sense that that term is understood, what they were suggesting. And this is why I, I don't think that the faith of the founders has any uh, particular specific um, governance over the uh, the U.S. Constitution and our broader civil law. And I make that argument, actually, in my book, The Legal Basis for a Moral Constitution, that some of these very well-meaning authors, like, for example, David Barton, who goes out and he tries to make this claim that all of the founders were necessarily and they had to have been very sincere Christians. I'm saying, well, what does it matter? It doesn't, because even if they were deists, let's just say that Jefferson, we know for a fact, and that's, that's an inarguable position, he's a deist, well, the Constitution still refers to the laws of nature and of nature's God that is established. They're self-evident. They're observable. C.S. Lewis would have described it as discoverable truths. We can't escape the reality to which we're presented. We know that government has inherent limits. There are things that we simply can't legislate. And there are also things that we can observe from nature, from um, from human beings that would say we have, because we have a conscience and because we have life, we cannot arbitrarily foreclose that without due process. Thus, we outlaw murder. I mean, very basic things that, that are so very different as well from the libertarian view of simply um, the non-aggression principle, because then you get into a whole separate set of problems with defining articulable harms and all of that. And so if we take the natural law position and say, look at what the left is doing, and they're wanting to arbitrarily suggest that we can codify everything that is unnatural. Homosexual marriage, that is not natural. Children can't come from a marriage uh, like that. That the whole gender phenomenon and that this is, um, this is a spectrum that's unnatural. We can naturally observe male versus female. Um, all of these things, even abortion, it's a medical intervention that is unnatural to deal with a pregnancy. Um, and so it, it obviously miscarriage is a natural, unfortunate and tragic event, but it's still a part of nature. So all of these things that the left is suggesting are inherent rights are actually unnatural. And our founders would have understood and the, the American experience would have understood that we don't have to specifically ordain a state-sponsored religion that is compulsory, that includes blasphemy laws, that includes um, determining people as heretics, but that we can say you're free to believe in any God you want, practice religion, not totally however you want, obviously, because there are still murder laws and things like that. Um, but you are free to exercise religion. You are free to be a part of any religion or no religion at all. But 
the civil government still has an objective standard on the laws of nature and of nature's God. And that seems very self-evident, yet the Christian nationalist position mirrors in this way leftism because the woke wants to institute blasphemy laws. If you don't say, and we don't, the government isn't compelling you to bake the cake, to create the website, to speak gender preferred pronouns, to now in California have uh, the the um, contemplation of um, of child custody around parents having to affirm their child's gender or something than what they biologically are. Those are basically modern day blasphemy laws. And so the Christian nationalist position is, well, we want to do the same thing as the left. We just want to impose our standard of church ethics and our religion as a national religion. And both of those are a completely opposite version of not separation church and state. We don't want that like the leftist, but we don't want the integralist position like the Christian nationalists. Exactly. And I think when we realize what's going on is that, you know, there's this fallacy that people like James Lindsay, you know, Fallon have talked about, and it's a really, it's a popular sort of postmodern fallacy known as the Mott and Bailey. And the Mott is usually the nicer term. The Bailey is sort of the crazy term, but they're using language off of one another where it sort of sounds the same, but it's ultimately different. So what's funny is, is that as it relates to this, and you see the Christian nationalists talking, they'll say things like, you know, we really want to have Christian morality in society. And then the flip side of it is, is they'll say things like, we want a Protestant Franco, or we think that the Constitution already really doesn't exist because look at all the ways that we've undermined it over the last hundred years and, you know, all of these different things. And I go, well, guys, first of all, we see your manipulations and what you're trying to do with it. Some of them on social media are just the gift that keeps on giving. So when you see some people talking about how they want to have these new foundings of the Constitution, you ask, well, what does it mean to have a new founding of the Constitution? Well, it means you have to have an undoing of the old constitution, an unfounding of the previous sort of set of laws and fabric that bound one another together. So what does that ultimately mean? Well, when you look at what they're doing with their project, not the, the nice things that they're saying about the project, but the, the Bailey aspects of it, they want to fundamentally do away with key aspects of the constitution. And when you follow some of them, Freedom of speech will be done away with because if they're going to enact blasphemy laws off of the things that you say, that's fundamentally doing away with freedom of speech or freedom of religion when they want to say things such as anybody who is a, quote, false teacher, heretic, blasphemer, or idolater, and they'll go on to add atheists and all the rest, that the Christian prince needs to fundamentally persecute them. And they'll say that either means imprisonment banishment and or death, that's a doing away of the freedom of religion. So what we have to fundamentally see here is, is that in their project, they're almost saying we're in a post-constitutional age. And because of the fact that we have blasphemy laws given to us, we can give blasphemy laws back to them. And I go, the whole American experiment is this. We can legislate morality without giving blasphemy laws. I can legislate morality without legislating religion. I can legislate morality without being an integralist. And that's where so much of this debate ultimately comes down to. Do you want a free society or do you want an integralist society in which blasphemy laws are given to you from the state in order to enforce church morality? Here's yeah, the interesting thing. It's, it's, it's 
which church is in control at that particular time also, because that's where the whole thing is. When you look at the history of even good, solid Protestant Reformation folk, whether in England or here, um, when you have the power, you legislate your view. When you lose the power, they legislate that against you. So what's sauce for the goose can be sauce for the gander. Right. And I think that it's so important to highlight that the integralist view is attempting to then strip the entire nation of all of the intrinsic rights that, that our founders and uh, and the Bible show are uh, given by God and are inalienable as our founders recognized. And so we are then going from a free society that that values genuine liberty and freedom and um, freedom in Christ, even as the Bible would suggest. And we're also denying the authority of Romans 13 and um, you know, and and First Peter, uh, yeah, First Peter two and elsewhere that talk about how the it's the civil government that carries the sword. It is not the church. And even though uh, Christ established a, a little bit differently, obviously in Old Testament Israel, that's not what we see in the church age. And we've got to take a break right here. But I want to be uh, be back with more on Christian nationalism with Dr. Bill Roach. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. All right, so we're back with Dr. Bill Roach, who is the Dean of the Norm Geisler Chair for Christian Apologetics at Veritas University, talking about the danger to liberty and freedom of Christian nationalism. And one of the examples that you so well highlight, uh, Bill, in your presentation is about how um, Hitler, actually in the Third Reich, used this concept of an integralist um, sort of framework and the Marxist dialectic uh, to then ultimately uh, gain power and to undo the German constitution. And this is, you know, I mean, and so many people, and I don't want to get caught up into, you know, oh, we're making Hitler comparisons or anything like that. But I think it is very important to go back and say, this is an example of how this can be used to undermine civil society and bring about the exact kind of authoritarianism that we're talking about. Exactly. That's why I say when we look at this whole issue, we have to look at it historically. And when you look at it historically, you're going to see many of the vices that it can actually give to us. And we see how these things function. We've seen other groups within the United States try to do this. For example, go to Dearborn, Michigan. What are they trying to do in Dearborn, Michigan? You hear you know, the, the calls for prayer every day. You see people taking over city councils. You see people legislating um, Muslim Quranic beliefs into the American experiment. And what are they ultimately doing? They're undermining the freedom of religion through their jihad on the Western, you know, legislative process. Well, what if we were to do that as a form of Christians, they might say, and I go, well, that's precisely in one sense, what Christian nationalists are trying to do. So let me give you a little quote here. And this comes from Stephen Wolf's book and listen for one key word, and you're going to know it when you hear it. And to draw the parallel, it says this, suppressing false religion in one's own land can be called a holy war. Hmm. What, where do we hear that? How do we translate holy war into Arabic? It's a jihad in that regard. For the intended effects is the elimination of sacrilege. In our time, the suppression of false religion is not an end in itself, but a means and matter of prudence. And such actions are prudent 
only if they conduce concretely to the good of the church. And that's why he goes on to say this, as I argue below, false religion is a crime against God and it can cause harm to one's fellow man. Hence, one can reject the view that the magistrates ought to punish the dishonoring of God and still coherently affirm the magistrates can restrain false religion in the interests of public good. In short, their holy war is to legislate religion to remove, as they would say, the blasphemers and the atheists and all the rest within our society. That at its core undermines the freedom of religion that our founders fought for and our country stands upon. So what we have to find is, is that when we are embracing the United States Constitution, the Constitution told us to reject such views as that. And that's what we ultimately push back against with our Standing for Liberty conference down in Florida, which you, you mentioned. And, you know, we had others like Chi Van Fleet talk about what that looked like in Mao's holy war, or we've had others talk about the Maoification of the United States. And what this is, is Christian nationalism is a form of totalitarianism. It's a Marxist concept that's going to use that to undermine freedom of religion in a totalitarian regime, just like all the ones we've seen throughout Western history. Yeah, and, and this is exactly like what we're seeing and what I think everyone listening would agree we as Christians and conservatives and Americans need to reject, which is this uh, jihad of, of the woke religion, right? And to say that uh, coming in through a declaration of emergency, for example, which is something also that Hitler did, uh, to say that the Constitution needs to be suspended because of a declaration of emergency, and this is for the public good. We heard that all during the whole COVID narrative, and we're seeing how the Democrats are testing that theory, and they're saying, well, constitutional rights aren't absolute, so therefore we can uh, suspend the right to keep and bear arms because we're declaring an emergency over gun violence, or the next thing it'll be climate change or it'll be, you know, the gender war, whatever it is, they're trying to use the powers of the Constitution, manipulate them in order to tear down that system and usher in totalitarianism. And every Christian, I think, and every constitutionalist and originalist and anyone rational, even if they're not a Christian, would say, absolutely no, that's insane. We need to reject that. That does not go along with the rule of law. But what we need to understand about Christian nationalism is that they are doing the exact same thing, but from the right. And they're doing that in the name of Christian nationalism. And we need to reject that type of misuse and abuse and tearing down our uh, freedoms and our liberties that are required and mandated under our system of government and through natural law parameters uh, to make sure that those are not torn down just so that we can usher in this kind of uh, age of, of, of suggesting that instead of the woke religion, it's the Christian religion, however they define it. Because that's really, I think, the crux here, uh, Bill Roach, of what the danger to America and to Americans genuinely is. Yeah, so much of it is, is that whenever we give up liberty for some kind of safety net, we always lose freedom. You know, whether that's going to be we're going to give up our our liberty to choose our own doctor under the guise of Obamacare, whether it's going to be we give up the liberty to buy and sell and move around the United States all under the idea of I'm keeping you healthy from a virus or whether I'm going to give you the freedom to worship Christ freely in this idea under the guise of Christian nationalism. 
you know, the, the idea is this, is that a rose by any other name is still a rose. And totalitarianism, whether it's a baptized totalitarianism or a secular totalitarianism, is still totalitarianism. And the net result is the loss of freedom. And that's what the average person listening to this should hear. Do you value freedom? Do you value your ability to go and worship God freely? Then you should reject this idea of Christian nationalism. Because in many respects, what it's going to do, whether they admit it or not, regardless of how much they squawk and squeal all over the internet about it, they're going to ultimately enact this jihad of holy war religion against people that differ with them. And they may say, well, this will never happen to Christians. Well, it's already happened to Christians on this soil. Mary Dyer, Boston Commons, right there at the advent of the Puritan age in the United States of America. So not only has it happened, not only can it happen, it's something that will happen if we allow it to happen again. Yeah, and, and not only has it happened historically, but it's happening even concurrently in our own contemporaneous society with what we're seeing from the weaponization of government and the uh, blasphemy laws really from woke institutions in the left like we're seeing and from some of this legislation that's attempting to censor and foreclose the First Amendment uh, constitutionally protected rights or Second Amendment or uh, any of those things that we would understand our fundamental rights. And if we are, as Christian conservatives, very concerned and are combating that at every turn to say, no, the left can't be the arbiters of uh, how we can speak, how we can participate in civil government, petition the government for redress, exercise our rights, all of those things, then we shouldn't allow one uh, kind of group of their preferred idea of what Christianity means to say that they can then point out heretics and they can then enact blasphemy laws um, any more than I would suggest to say that, okay, if someone believes differently about the Bible and I would within the parameters of my church say, yeah, that's a heretical position. That's, you know, the word heretic, a lot of people um, think is too harsh these days. We don't really use it in, in more of the traditional sense that um, Europe did, but um, but to understand that it's heresy, it means false doctrine. Well, we should, as Christians, rightly divide truth from error. But the worst that a church can do is excommunicate or church discipline. That's not the same as the civil government. That's not the same as imprisonment for your yeah. beliefs. And I will, just like uh, the, the mantra and one of our greatest expressions of liberty suggests, I will defend ardently even speech that I vehemently disagree with. Why? Because I want to make sure that my speech and my rights and my freedoms are protected too. So where do we go from here? What I think we need to do is we need to go from here is that we have to fight for the freedom of religion and for the right originalist understanding of our constitution here in the United States. And I think we also need to educate people on this idea of what does it look like to be a conservative Christian within the American experiment. And I think of it in this regard. First of all, there are two versions of the Westminster Confession of Faith. You have the, the European version, the original one that was given, and then you have the American updated version that realized we do things different with the relationship between the state and the church here in the United States of America. Even the, the people that came here upholding this strong sort of reform tradition recognize that, and we should teach people to recognize that. But what we also have to see and what we need to go from here is, is that the analogy that I give is this, 
is that, you know, there's this big push on the part of the left right now to pack the courts. They want to expand the Supreme Court justices in order to really get a number that can, you know, rule favorably on a position in their direction. And we realize the fundamental error of this is, is that if they get too many people on the court, yeah, they can put all of their things in. But what if we have another administration that packs the court in our gender, or our direction? Then what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. It can be turned back against them. So I think the parallel that I make with this is, is that the same can happen with blasphemy laws and compelled religion. If you proverbially pack the United States view with Christian nationalist blasphemy laws, how long, given the secularization of the West, are you really going to be able to keep it? And once the precedent has been set, they'll use that against you. So that's why I'm saying we need to do exactly like you were saying. We need to defend ardently freedom of speech, freedom of religion, educate people on the history of what this looks like within the American experiment, and stand for our freedoms now, lest we lose them going forward. Yeah, and I think what is, uh, that's so well said, and I think one of um, the the big points that I hope that listeners take away from this as well is that separation of church and state actually does matter, and we tend to uh, only argue that against the left as Christians, but we need to understand that, that separation unlike the integralist movement, unlike a theocracy, also really matters, and that our founders understood all of these principles because they had come from world history. They were educated in uh, not only principles of politics and civil law, um, the, the drafters of the declaration on the declaration committee, all five of them were lawyers. They were educated in law and policy, how law moves and shapes a society. And um, all of the founders, there were uh, priests, there were um, religious pastors among them. There were, um, I, I believe it was something like 52 of the signers. Um, I have this specific number in my book, but um, they, they were all lawyers. And it all matters to understanding how they shaped a republic, like Benjamin Franklin said, if you can keep it. And it's interesting because we see this even taught in the text of scripture in this regard. Jesus was going along and he found a coin. And the question was, who do we pay our taxes to? And Jesus looks at it and he says, what? You see this coin and whose image is on there? It's Caesar's. And he gives this idea of you need to give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and that which is God's to God. So when you look at yourself, whose image are you made in? You're made in the image of God, but the coin clearly has the image of Caesar to it. In that, Jesus is making a distinction between proper religion and how one's right with God, pay to God what is God's, and the distinction between that and the state, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And I think that's what we rightly need to argue for here. Give that which is God to God's and that which is Caesar unto Caesar, and don't let us use Christian nationalism to blur that definition and to give us some kind of integralist totalitarianism all in the name of Jesus Christ. Because fundamentally, if it's going to undermine our freedoms, it will be turned against us and it will stifle, if not completely nullify, the freedom of religion and freedom of speech within the United States of America. 
Yeah. And I, I think that's um, such an excellent point uh, to end on. And we're almost out of time anyway. So uh, Bill Roach, really appreciate that. And I think um, for all listeners, we need to be daily in the word of God, rightly dividing truth from error so that we can see what the Bible does teach about civil government, about church government, about family government, about the Christian life and how we need to participate actively, not just in our own Christian life and perfecting that and sanctifying ourselves until the day of Jesus Christ, until he returns or calls us home, but understanding how we can best and better participate in civil society and also in the church and understand these complexities, because this is more important than just saying, well, I'm a Christian and I believe in America and I'll leave it at that. Right. So um, Bill Roach, really, really appreciate your time here today. Um, How can people find you on social media and continue to follow your work? Just look me up on Twitter. It's at uh, Bill Roach, I think, underscore, or my YouTube channel, Dr. Bill Roach. And there I post podcasts related to philosophy, apologetics, ethics, and so much more. Yeah, and and I've watched a lot of those and they're fantastic. So thanks so much. So for those of you listening on the podcast side, you can always subscribe wherever you are streaming or at thejennaellishow.com. And for our American Family Radio family, you can always reach me, jenna at afr.net. And you can always listen to the podcast version there as well at afr.net. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. We'd like to thank our sponsors, including Preborn. Preborn has rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day their network clinics rescue 200 babies' lives. Will you join Preborn in loving and supporting young moms in crisis? Save a life today. Go to preborn.com.